Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. My name's Greg. Uh, you may not recognize me. I haven't been here for a while, but it's good to be back. I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. Uh, 2023 has so far not been the best year health-wise for me. I think I've had three weeks where I haven't been coughing, either, either getting a cough or trying to lose a cough or in the middle of a cough. But uh, I'm good to go today, and I'm really glad, that, really good to be here, really. That worship set was just, I got so blessed. So very, 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 very blessed. So welcome to all you. Welcome to folks who are joining online. I'm glad that you're here as well, whenever you, it is that you're listening to this. Uh, I got to start by giving a, a shout out to uh, Dan and to, to Emily. The last two weeks just did fantastic. What this message is great. Last week's message by Dan was the best sermon on the unity of consciousness I think I've ever heard. In fact, I, I, I would bet in all of church history, it's probably the first message in any church on the unity of consciousness. Okay, so that's, he, 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 he hit it out of the park in terms of originality. Uh, it, it was great. But we're blessed to have a team like this. I, I, you know, Danny Churchill's kind of stepped up, and I just think it's so important to be hearing the, the, the word from different perspectives, don't you think? From different age groups, not just from one old fart, but from, from younger people. And uh, yeah, just uh, so we're, we're really blessed to have that team here. We're in this series called Unraveling Truth. Because we're living in an epoch in an age where the very concept of truth is becoming unraveled. It's part of a world that feels like it's becoming unraveled. I just read an essay last week. It was called The Great Unraveling. And this person just names this age that we're in as the great unraveling. Things that you thought were stable are, are being shaken. Things that you thought were unquestionable are being questioned. Uh, it feels like things are getting fragmented and coming undone. Um, it, it tell you what, it, as... as uh, as we go into this unraveled world, this person, this person's called it the, the, the uh, post-normal world. From here on end, it's just weird. So just get used to this. Weird is the new normal. But as we go into this world, um, it just makes me so appreciative of that, that last song we just sang. I'm so glad I'm a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Amen? Every other thing you can look at in this world can be shaken and will be shaken, but the kingdom of God cannot be shaken, praise God. And I encourage you, uh, just to put all your hope in Jesus Christ. As, as, as other, other possible candidates for hope are dying by the wayside and becoming unraveled, make sure that your identity and your life and your hope and your joy and your peace are centered in Jesus Christ. Uh, he's not going to abandon us. He will return, praise God, and his kingdom will be established, and it cannot be shaken. And I'm glad I'm part of that, man. Amen, amen. So uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about the unraveling of confidence and a belief in a personal God. And uh, we, we, we thought it would be good in the series on occasion, not, maybe not every week, but on occasion to, to ask for your input. Kind of want to figure out, find out where, 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 where folks are at. Not just the folks that attend here in person, but also our congregation online. And, and so I'm going to be asking you a question, and I would like you to text in an answer to this question. If, you're, if you have your iPhones right now, get, out, get your iPhones out and prepare to do this right now, because we're going to do it right now. And... Um, Text it. The number you want to text your answer in is 651-321-3030. 651-321-3030. And the question is this. We all know what you're supposed to say when you're asked the question, what's your conception of God? You all know you're supposed to say God is love. But let's get honest here, really real here. When I say God, uh, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Or what's your dominant picture of God? Not what you're supposed to think. Maybe not even what you believe theologically, but, but, but what actually goes on in your head when I say God. It could be, the word could be anger, the word could be love, the word could be faithful, the word could be 
arbitrary or capricious, the word can be distant, whatever. Uh, take 10 seconds uh, online in here and, and please uh, uh, text in your, your, your answers. Uh, if you're watching this, not necessarily right now on Sunday morning, but some other time, you can still text in your answer to this question. You just have to get it here by, I think they said Wednesday, Wednesday noon or so, give or take. So, and, and then we'll, we'll report on the answers next week. And that will set up my talk about belief in a personal God. Are we done? Are you texting your answers? I see, oh, good. I see some phones out. That's good. All right. And if your phones aren't with you, then do it when you get home. And what if people don't have iPhones? We didn't think of that. Um, may, you, I'll tell you what. You, you can write out your answer on a piece of paper and give it to Rob. Or call him at 2 in the morning. He doesn't care. He's, 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 he's cool with it. You, you need a best friend, Rob, at 3 in the morning. All right. Okay, so the, the team that I... Uh, get together with that helps put together the sermon series and kind of figures out, helps with the sermons. They thought it'd be good at this point in our series if I gave a, a teaching on, on, on how to hold on to your faith uh, in an age of unraveling. Um, and there's actually two lessons here about uh, holding on to your faith and, and how, to, how to think about our faith, all right? So there can be two lessons on this. And both lessons, you're blessed this morning, folks. I'm telling you, you're so blessed because both lessons involve me drawing things. I love to draw. And, and there, there's diagrams. In fact, both, both lessons will have uh, diagrams with concentric circles, all right? So um, first, I want us to think about there's three things that are happening in any conversation, all right? So let's suppose... Uh, Jack and Jill go up a hill to fetch a... Wait, what's with that song anyway? Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. What kind of song is that to teach kids? I, I, I just want to get it. So here's Jack. I told you I'm, I'm, I'm just really great at drawing. And here's Jill. And I don't mean to stereotype or anything, but, you know, I have to have some kind of... There, how's that? Can you see that? Kind of? If, if, if you can't, you're not missing much, let me tell you. So, Jack and Jill. Now, here's the thing. Jack believes in God. What? Oh, I thought you... I, oh, really? But that's okay. What, does it matter? Oh, can I, I switch, switch them? We're really slick around here, folks. <laughs> Polished, let me tell you. Uh, that's not what we aim at. So, Jack believes in God and Jill does not. Um, and so, so, so Jack wants to find out why Jill doesn't believe in God. Now, here's the thing. When, when Jack says God, here's three concentric circles. Isn't that nice? When, when, when I, I could make a living drawing targets. All right. So when, 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 Jack, when Jack says God, you believe in God, Jill knows basically what he means by God. We all do. If you speak English, you're part of the culture. The word God, whether you believe in God or not, you know what the word means, supreme being, creator, things like that. This is what we might call the uh, social meaning of the word God or the semantic meaning of the word God. And for those of you who are into philosophy, this is what Wittgenstein would, 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 would label. This is God within a certain language game, within a cultural context. We know what the word God means. But there's something more fundamental going on. Because when I say the word God... Or when Jack says the word God, he might have one conception of God, and Jill might have something very different. The word God will activate different things going on in their mind. We could call this the mental, uh, the mental conception of God. Don't worry if you can't see that, because I can't spell it either. Mental. It's what's going on in your head. 
And see, it could be that when, when, when Jack, let's suppose, he's been a, you know, a, a, a parishioner of Woodland Hills for a long period of time, and these are, these are bubbles with thoughts, okay? So that's what this is. Um, he, he pictures God, he, he knows God is love. So here's a triangle and there's a love. Triangle with love. And, and, and so it, it, all of our feelings about God are, are associated with our mental picture of God. And so he gets a love-warming feeling and he smiles. He's happy. But it could be the case that Jill... When she thinks about the word God, she instinctively thinks about an angry God. She was raised maybe in an in a, in a, in a austere context, and so uh, her idea of God is judgmental and perfectionist. You're never good enough. Now, both of these people, they, since they do this automatically, they're not aware of what their conception is. They're talking about God as though they're, they, they mean the same thing. But it could be the case that, in fact, they're talking past each other. Because what's going on in their head, they have very, they're talking about two different gods. Um, in fact, this goes on a lot. We talk past each other. We have the same word, but have totally different realities going on inside of their minds. And there's a third thing that's going on. So this is the mental, what's inside your head. Social is our talking about it, how the word God functions in our culture and in a particular subculture. But both these folks... There is the reality of God. Now, Jill doesn't believe in the reality of God, but there is an objective reality to God. And um, they believe that the word, the word God refers to this reality. It's just that Jill denies that reality because uh, she thinks that reality is all ugly and mean and nasty. So this, we could call this the reality of God or the reality. It applies to any concept. But what, what, what does the word refer to in reality? Now, you've maybe heard the expression that the map is not the territory. Psychologists use this quite a bit. The map is not the territory. Uh, it just means that our conceptions of things are not the things themselves. So if you think about a map, the map of Minnesota, for example. The map of Minnesota is not the state of Minnesota. Hopefully it has some cor correlations there uh, so you can get around. But see, the state of Minnesota is way bigger. The reality of Minnesota is way bigger than the map. The reality of Minnesota is three-dimensional, but the map isn't. The reality of Minnesota it has people and lakes and mosquitoes and, and all sorts of other things, but the map doesn't have any of those things. So the reality always far outruns the map. So also the reality of God far outruns any of our maps. And actually the reality of anything that we're talking about outruns the reality of our mental conceptions of those things. Um, now, hopefully, I, I would agree that Jack has a more accurate conception of God than Jill does, because um, we believe God really is love. But for both of them, their maps and the reality of God outruns both of their conceptions of God. Uh, and that, that ought to, just knowing that the map is not the territory, to remember that, um, it should create a kind of a humility in us. Now, hopefully our maps have a correlation with the real God, especially as it concerns the character of God. Um, to trust in God's character that God is, as we just sang, God is love. Uh, and, and, and so I think the most important fact in our life is what is our mental conception of God? And do you have a character, a conception of God that is altogether good, altogether lovely, altogether trustworthy, altogether beautiful? Now, the reality of God will far outrun your conception of his beauty and love or whatever. So always be beautifying your conception of God. That's so important because... The passion of your love for God will never outrun the beauty of your mental conception of God. 
And the beauty of your life will never outrun the, the beauty of your mental conception of God because we always take on the, the, the picture of God in our mind that, we are, that, that we're worshiping. So it, uh, it, hopefully there's a correlation there, but the reality always outruns uh, the, the conception. Remember this when you're talking to somebody. We'll start with just about God. Perhaps the person um, doesn't believe in God. Before you start arguing about it, find out what their map is. Because you really don't know what you're talking about until you understand their map. And maybe the story behind their map. You meet a person who doesn't believe in God and find out what is, the, what, what is their conception of the God they're not believing in. And I have yet to find a person, an atheist, who doesn't believe in God. Of course, all atheists don't believe in God, so that's redundant. But I have yet to find an atheist whose picture of God is the God that I would believe in. The God they're rejecting is not the God that I'm believing in. If I thought God looked like that, I'd reject them too. And so you, you find if you, if you take the time to go past the semantic meaning of the word God, the social meaning of the word God, and get on the inside of the person's mind and heart and how they feel about things, you might find you have a whole lot more in common than you thought. I am talking right now with a guy who, uh, he doesn't believe in God, but uh, when you get on the inside of his, his life and the story behind it and, and the conception of God that he's rejecting, I don't blame that on him at all. If that was my life experience and if that was my conception of God, I'd probably be an atheist too. But can I introduce to you a different conception of God? You see? And, 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 and so by, by getting on the inside, you, you find ways of building bridges. And this applies not just to the word God or the concept of God, but to anything we might talk about, especially anything that's important. Always remember the map is not the territory. And the reality of what you're talking about outruns any of our conceptions about it, that ought to create a humility in us because we all see partially. We see through a glass darkly, right? And, and, and so we just have to be kind of humble in our truth claims. I'll stand on one thing firmly, and that's that God's character is love. But the God otherwise is incomprehensible. He's beyond anything we can imagine. But the, the, here's what makes life interesting is we all have different maps. If I say the word God, hopefully... Everybody who has been attending World of Hills at any length of time, you know what you're supposed to say. Uh, God is love, but, but I don't know what actually happens in your mind. Um, you know, because we're always in the process of outdoing the garbage in our head and, and the lies that we've inherited, and we're all in process on that. But, but we all will have slightly different conceptions of God. We all believe that God exists. I'm assuming here, if, we're, if you're a believer, uh, that God exists. Uh, but we, we conceive of God in different ways. Um, and that's true for anything we might talk about. If I say justice... For some people, that maybe puts a happy face on them. For other people, it puts a sad face on them or angry face. Because th different things come to your mind. You say police. You might have some people who think, well, that's good news. Like the, like, like the good news that God is to Jack, but not to Jill. But there's other folks for whom maybe their life experience is such that say the word police, and their first reaction is, ooh, I'm scared. Say abortion or anything like that. Emotions can get really hot, and you've got a map about that. And you meet a person who disagrees with your math, and you might get into a fight. But first, before you start arguing about it, take time to say, okay, well, what do you mean by justice? And when, how do you think about that? Or whatever term you're talking about. And then get on the inside and learn their story. And you, you see, what that does, instead of creating hostility between each other, you're, you're creating empathy. And you're, being, you're building bridges instead of putting up walls. And man, do we need that in this culture right now, folks? What, 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 what? With all this toxicity going on in the political realm and 
All the other stuff we need, bridge builders. People take the time to empathize with others who disagree with them. Um, a great organization that helps people learn how to do this, because our default is always to think that our map is the territory. A great group that, that helps us learn how not to do that is Braver Angels. Uh, you can go on their website, and they've got uh, debates that they, they host. They have workshops that they host and all sorts of things like that. And it, it's a, a really good lesson to learn. And so I encourage all of us, however we're doing it, to be aware that your map is not the territory. Thus ends lesson number one. See, Rob, that turned out okay. Okay, good. So now lesson number two. I want to talk about how... In this day and age, this postmodern world in which the very concept of truth is becoming unraveled, how should we think about the various beliefs that we hold as part of our faith? Um, so, traditionally, people have thought about their faith. You guys are quite at a disadvantage here. Uh, you have to look at the board if you can see my wonderful drawings. This also has concentric circles in it, uh, but I'll get to that later. The traditional way that people have thought about faith is, is like this. It, it, it's like a, a, they hold their faith as a bounded set. Here's here, bounded set. It's called, you define your faith by the, by the parameters, the boundaries. And inside this box are all the things that Christians are supposed to believe. And so to, to belong to the church means you believe in God, means you believe in Jesus, you believe in spirit, you believe in the church. And, and, and now depending on what church you're going to, different churches put different things in this box. The church that I was first came to Christ in, uh, you had to speak in tongues. That was that's part of it. And you had to uh, uh, be baptized in Jesus' name. Baptism was a part. And they had a bunch of other little beliefs. So you just like, some places may have 12 beliefs and 12 practices. Others might have 24. But, but the idea is that to belong to this group, you've got to have buy into the whole thing. You convert to the whole thing. This is an all or nothing thing. Um, box set theology. We are the people who believe all the true things as opposed to all the others who leave all the false things. Now, this way of holding on to your faith, it worked pretty, much, pretty well throughout most of church history, but only because, for the most part, Christians throughout history, the vast majority of them never really shared life with people who had different beliefs. Uh, for the most part, they lived in a homogenous environment. And it's really easy to continue to believe that you, have, you belong to the group with all the true beliefs if you never confront somebody who has a different box. Everyone has this box, and so you just assume that the box is true. But see, we don't live in that age any longer, not by a long shot. We live in a very pluralistic time, a cosmopolitan time. And uh, um, a time where the diversity of beliefs is on full display. We live in an age where the very concept of truth is becoming unraveled, and that changes everything. And to go walk around and present people with this kind of model of faith, convert to, come to my, convert to my faith, which means believe all these 14 things, it just isn't plausible. It's hard enough to convince people that there's one truth, any truth, let alone that you have all the truth. It comes across as arrogant. But of course, we all have beliefs that we think are true, otherwise we wouldn't believe it. But, but holding it, see, in, 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 this set, in this way of doing it, everything's equally important. And you disagree with any of these things, and, and you're out. Because belonging to the club, belonging to the group, it means you have to have full buy-in. I want to offer you a different way of holding on to the faith, a little humbler way. And this way defines, defines our faith, not in terms of the boundaries, but in terms of the center. This is called a centered set way of thinking about 
our, our, our faith. And so there's a center. I'll put the center right here, even though it's not central on the page, but uh, for reasons that I'll get to later on. But there's a center. And this is what defines us. We're not looking, see, on, on the box set, the boundary set, everyone's looking outward at the, 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 the parameters. And, and you'll find in groups that define their faith this way, uh, you have policemen of the parameters who are always checking who's in and who's out. Because you have to, because this is your identity. This is the group identity. Uh, and it's an all or nothing thing. This, this way of doing it allows for no process. You have to have full buy-in or not. In a centered set way of thinking, um, it's not an all or nothing thing. We are the people who are moving in this direction. This is the center. And it allows for process. People are at different places in different ways as we're moving to the center. But what defines us as a community is the direction we're going. Not that we have all the right package, but it's the directionality of it. So what is the center of the Christian faith? Jesus. That's a dur. Uh, Jesus is the center of the Christian faith. But now we've got to be careful because what Jesus are you talking about? The map's not the territory. You say the word Jesus and a whole lot of people have different conceptions of Jesus. Very different conceptions of Jesus. And the way Jesus is being used right now in the national Christian movement is just bad PR for Jesus. But that's a different sermon. Okay. So the center is, is, is Jesus, but which Jesus are we talking about? The Jesus that I'm talking about, that's the center of our faith, is the Jesus whose life and ministry is, is, is summed up in and culminates in his sacrificial death on the cross, which was confirmed by the resurrection. The cross is the, the, kind of the, the through line of everything Jesus was about. And the cross reveals the essence of God, that God is other-oriented, self-sacrificial love. That is the center of the center. So I could symbolize this by, uh, with a cross. This is the center. Right. How's that? Um, <clears throat> now, th this isn't an arbitrary thing that I'm just like, I, I like this the best, so let's put it at the center. It's at the center because the New Testament presents the cross as being at the center of everything, the definitive revelation of God. So Paul at one point says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, uh, to them, it's an offhand comment, but it's just so profound. He says, I, re I, I determined to know nothing when I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now see, that statement presupposes that for Paul, everything he really had to say to the Corinthians is found in the crucified Christ. Everything you need to know about God is found in the crucified Christ. Everything you need to know about each other is found in the crucified Christ. Uh, the crucified Christ reveals the essence of God. God is like this, other-oriented love. The cross reveals what, what God thinks about us, what God thinks about me, what God thinks about you, that, that you are worth dying for and, and you have unsurpassable worth. And the cross is central because it, it, it outlines the kind of life that we're supposed to leave. The cross isn't just something that God did for us. It's something that we're called to, to follow. Pick up your cross and follow him. We're to live self-sacrificial lives in service and love to others. So Paul says in Ephesians 5, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Live in that love at all times at, with all people. Never put the off button to love. So Paul could not say what he said unless everything, the center, unless everything summed up in the cross. And um, it's the center of our faith. One more reason why it's the center. And that is because, as I always teach around here, I really believe that we are to get all of our life from our relationship with God who's revealed in the crucified Christ. 
And by life, I mean our core sense of identity and worth and significance and security. What makes your life worth living? If our heads are on right, the thing that makes us confident and makes us feel like we're living the good life, it's not what we acquire or who we impress or what we, whatever. It, it's the fact that we know what God thinks about it. We know who God is and we know what God thinks about me and we know what God thinks about everyone else. And, and, and that's good news. And it's the, the love of God that comes from that that compels us to do what we do. Well, get your life from, 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 from the crucified Christ, the God who's revealed in Christ. Because see, if we're not getting our core sense of life from Christ, we got to get it from something else. So what will make you feel good about yourself is because you're so pretty or you're so handsome or you're so muscly or you're so smart, you're so intellectual, you're, you earn so much money, you, you're so famous, you can sing so well or whatever, whatever, whatever. People just try to suck their self-esteem off of that. And they have to because if they're not getting it from their creator who's revealed on the cross. Another way of getting life, it's very common, increasingly common these days, I think, is to get life because you are so right. Uh, you have the box of all true thoughts. And, and it's true with people... This is the, the great all-time idolatry of religious people is that they get life because they belong to the right group that has all of the right beliefs, the, the, the bounded set. Um, or increasingly today, people get life because they have all the right political opinions. And see, here's the thing. If, if your identity is wrapped up in the rightness of your beliefs or in your prettiness or whatever, if, if, if someone challenges that, what happens? You get prickly. Too much is at stake. They're going after your idol. That, an idol is anything that, that, that takes the place of God. and Because you're feeding off of it. An idol is anything that plays a role in your life that only God should play. And anything is a potential idol. If you have the idol of rightness, whether it's politics or religion or whatever, and when someone challenges that, what? Come on, what are you talking about? You know, because too much is at stake here. So you become a butthead. As you're trying to talk about things, you get, you get angry, you get ornery, you get nasty, and if you turn a, a political butthead or a religious butthead or some kind of butthead, don't be a butthead. And I, folks, I'm sorry. Amen. It's sad that that has to... We are in a... Look, we find two people who are getting nasty at each other over a conversation, and I will show you people who are holding on to idols. And man, we have a culture right now that is dying in idolatry. The venom that's coming out of mouths in Washington, and, and the, the fighting and the suspicion and the name-calling and the accusations. They hate America. They hate democracy. They, it's just idolatry all over the place. Can we stop and calmly talk about the real issues that are at hand? No. Too busy screaming. Get all your life from Christ. Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 16, whatever you do, do it in love. Whatever, let everything you do be done in love. Everything. Everyone say Everything. I think that includes having discussions. What do you think? I don't know. It's me. It's just me. When you have discussions, especially about tough topics, make sure that you're doing it in love. And what does love look like? It looks like Calvary, where you're ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself if necessary. In every conversation, it ought to be the case that communicating your respect and love for the person is more important than winning the stupid debate. Because what difference does winning the debate make in the whole scheme of things? But love can change a person's life. But you will only be able to do this, living in love as Christ loved us, if we're getting all of our life and our worth and our significance, our identity and our security, not from being right, but from, 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 from Jesus Christ, the God who's, who's revealed in Jesus Christ. And know why you believe that. Have your reason. To, if, if there's any topic that we should be read up on, it's like, why do you believe in Jesus as opposed to Muhammad, as opposed to Allah or whatever? And if someone challenges that, 
You still stay in love because your center is commanding you to live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for it. Just say, what's your evidence? And just talk evidence. Call in lovingly. Lay out the evidence and you have nothing to be afraid of. Uh, the evidence is strong uh, on behalf of, of Jesus Christ. So the center of the center is the cross. Now, just outside the center, where's my, just outside the center, the next ring, and there'll be five rings in this diagram. So the next ring, oops, I didn't budget very well for that, did I? I, I? I'm not good at space budgeting. In fact, I am so spatially challenged. Anyone in this room, if you play me in any game that involves judging distances and then calculating like, like a hand toss game, whatever, you will beat me. I'm so bad at those games. How do I hit it way too hard? Or, like, it's terrible. Anyways, the next ring is scripture. Scripture. The inspiration of scripture. Now, here's the thing. A lot of Christians would put scripture in the, in the middle, at the center. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. Boom! Um, and so at the center of our faith is a book. Because we base all of our beliefs on the Bible, right? Well, yeah, except this. I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus because I first believe in the inspiration of the Bible. I believe in the inspiration of the Bible because I first believe in Jesus. Now, I believe in Jesus, as I mentioned several weeks ago, I've got a lot of good reasons for believing in Jesus. Uh, just looking at the Gospels from a historical perspective, using the same kind of historical critical criteria that you apply to any other ancient document to determine how trustworthy it is, they come out with flying colors. I mentioned a couple books you could get a couple weeks ago on that. Um, but I believe in Jesus for historical reasons, combined with some philosophical reasons. I mean, if you understand the Gospel story, it is the greatest love story that could ever be told. God becoming a human being, going to the infinite distance out of love for people who could deserve it less. It's the greatest story ever told, and I've got all the historical reasons in the world to believe it actually happened. That's why I believe in Jesus. Now, once I believe in Jesus, I come to the assessment that the Gospels are basically reliable, and they present a basically reliable uh, portrait of, 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 of Jesus. Well, then I notice this, that Jesus, who I now call Lord, he clearly believed in the Old Testament as divinely inspired. He based his whole ministry on that. His whole identity is wrapped up in that. And he pre-authenticates the New Testament, saying the Holy Spirit will come upon you, lead you all true, in all truth, bring to remembrance all that I said and all the rest. And, and so now that I believe in Jesus, I have reasons for believing in the Bible. All my reasons for believing in Jesus are now reasons for believing that the Bible is divinely inspired. Now, there's one huge advantage to holding your faith this way. Um, it's, 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 it's that... If, if my reasons for believing in the inspiration of Scripture are anchored in Jesus, and I have got good historical reasons for believing in Jesus, then when I come upon a problem in the Bible, so an error, a contradiction, or maybe I discover that some story isn't quite historically accurate or something like that, it's not going to bother me. It's not going to bother me. Because my reasons for believing the Bible isn't that I think it's inerrant or I think that it's perfectly historically accurate or scientifically accurate or anything like that. I believe in the Bible because Jesus believes in the Bible, and if he's my Lord, I can't disagree with him. All right? And, and so as long as I'm confident that Jesus is Lord, I'm confident that the Bible's inspired. I don't care what I find in it. If I find it error, it just tells me that one of the purposes for which God inspired this passage was not to avoid all errors. Uh, and, and if you have a God who's not going to turn people into puppets, you've got to expect to find some human fallibility in the thing. In fact, I, can, I can't get into this now, but... Uh, if this is a new thing for you, if you haven't heard this before, uh, maybe you're thinking like, why he doesn't believe in the narrative of the Bible? I can't know. Well, look, I, I, 
I actually believe that once you are looking at the Bible, if your Bible's, belief in the Bible is anchored in, in, in the cross, and, and you are reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, which Jesus himself tells us to do, he says, that's all about me, that, then you'll find that the so-called problems in the Bible are not problems at all. They actually enhance the divine authority of Scripture. Um, can't get into explaining all that, but I have a book on it. If you want to read more on it, it's called Inspired Imperfection, and, and you can check that out. So the second ring of our faith is uh, the inspiration of Scripture. Now, the third ring is... Sorry. I am just so clumsy. Dogma. Like I said, Woodland Hills runs a slick program. The word dogma, no one likes that word anymore because it sounds, it goes with dogmatic. And in this age of absolute tolerance, we're not supposed to be dogmatic about anything. But I don't have a better word, so deal with it. Uh, but dogma just refers to beliefs that all Christians have held in common. What Christians have at all times and all places always believed. The foundational beliefs of the church. Um, and these all come out of our reading of Scripture. Dog, the dogmas represent the foundational beliefs, kind of how we agree that Scripture should be interpreted. Uh, they're, they're found like in the, the early ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to read at the end of this message, and uh, the Nicene Creed. And, and, and you find in those creeds these kind of beliefs. We believe in God, uh, the Father Almighty. He's all-powerful. We believe that uh, in, in Jesus is only Son. Uh, we believe he was... Uh, Tried under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and he died, but he rose again from the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic not meaning Roman Catholic, but the word means universal, the church universal. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus will return and establish his, his kingdom. And just those kind of foundational beliefs. Now, those are very, very important. I, I can't say they're infallible, but it would take a whole lot to change my mind about them because it's what Christians have always believed. It's the very definition of orthodoxy. And so we should be very cautious about uh, trying to tinker with these foundational beliefs, uh, the things that are found like in the Apostles' Creed. I can imagine a circumstance where I would say, no, I think I disagree with that, but it would take a whole lot to convince me of that because the whole weight of the church tradition is in favor of these beliefs. Um, so there's, there's, there's the dogma. And then after that, there's doctrine. All right. And doctrines... Yes, this is looking good. <laughs> Doctrine. Doctrines are, are beliefs that particular groups of Christians have held. They're, they're, almost all of them are different ways of interpreting dogma. Uh, so we agree on the dogma, but we disagree on, on how to interpret it. And, and different groups form around that. And, and these are all doctrines. So, for example, um, the, the, uh, we've always believed, all Christians have always believed that God is almighty, all-powerful. But we interpret that in different ways. Some say, well, if God's all-powerful, he must be controlling everything. And so they, they hold that God predestines all that comes to pass. And, and if you deny that, then they'll say, well, you don't believe that God is all-powerful. But other groups, and this is where Woodland Hills on the whole is at, certainly this is where I'm at, is we think, yeah, God originally has all power because he's the creator, but he He's the God who pours himself out. That's what the cross reveals. He's the God who gives himself away. And so he gives away power. He gives away say-so. He empowers us to have a say in what comes to pass. And we have free will about that. And only because, in our view, in my view at least, if we didn't have free will, we wouldn't be capable of love. And love's the point of the whole thing. 
So we have di- different uh, ways of looking at that. I think it's an important issue because what you believe about that will affect your conception of God. Um, so it, it's not unimportant. But because Christians have disagreed about this, you can't say that it's dogma, it's doctrine. So here at Wilhelm's Church, we affirm the dogma of the church, but we also have particular doctrines, particular ways of interpreting those dogmas. And so, like, how do you baptize? That gets in there. How do you baptize? Should women be in ministry? That's one today. Uh, do you believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today? How should church be structured? And a hundred other different beliefs that Christians have almost always disagreed on. Um, they all fall in the realm of doctrine. Not as important as dogma, and not as important as Scripture, because Scripture is the foundation for the whole thing. Uh, but sometimes it can be very important. And finally, out here, we have opinion. I told you I'm so, <laughs> I'm so bad at, at, at budgeting space. So, there. It looks like onion. Yes, out here is the realm of the onions. Opinion, and, and this is everything else. That, whatever beliefs you have about what, what does this passage mean, what does that passage mean, or what this theme in the Bible, that theme, whatever, uh, if, if, if no group has affirmed it and owned it as part of their identity, then it's neither dogma nor doctrine. It's just your opinion. And that's fine. And we've got different opinions about a million different things here, and that's something to celebrate, right? Um, but you can't elevate it to the position of doctrine or dogma. A classic case of this would be, uh, I, several years ago I proposed, this uh, cruciform hermeneutic. Um, it's a crossway, cross-centered way of interpreting the violent pictures of the Old Testament. Now, it's got a, a lot of precedent for it in the early church. A lot of folks were going in this direction, at least. But it never became an official teaching of any particular group of Christians. And so it's not a doctrine, it's not a dogma. It's just an opinion. I think it's important. I recommend it for everybody. But even at Wilton Hills, it's not a doctrine. Because um, it's Greg's opinion. And you can accept it. You can reject it. Wrestle with it, whatever you want to do. But it, it's, it's just opinion. So there's a lot of those opinions. I would encourage us to have this sense of perspective as we're carrying our faith and as we're sharing our faith. Always be looking at the center. Uh, you know, if you know God in Jesus Christ and you know what he thinks about you and you know what he thinks about everybody else and you know what he thinks about the creation, well, everything else is really icing on the cake, right? And, and so uh, in, in, in talking about the gospel to people, the more you can stay away from this stuff and keep on focusing on the center, because that's what we invite people to. And, we, and we're all moving in, in, in different ways towards the center because our faith is defined by the center. We're the people who are following Jesus, we're Jesus' follower. And part of what it means to follow Jesus, we think, is, is you have, have you know, stances on these things, but hold the center as the center and, and invite people to be along in the process as we go through this. All right. And now I want to end this service. I can't believe I, it's, how, how'd that happen? I was worried I wouldn't have enough time. Have I been talking too fast? I tend to do that, you know. And that's what, after 12 years of speech therapy, all through high school, I had, all through my schooling, I had speech therapy to slow me down. Because I get log jam in my brain and my tongue. I would stutter so bad. So I may be going too fast, but man, you should have heard me in second grade. <laughs> I'd like us to do something we have never done here at Woodland Hills Church, and I want to really invite the, the online congregation to participate in this. I want us together to read the Apostles' Creed. And I don't know why we've never done that here. It feels arrogant to not do that because 
by confessing the Apostles' Creed, we're confessing. This is a creed. It wasn't really written by the Apostles, but it has apostolic authority. It goes back to the earliest version of it comes out of a a creed in in the second century. And it it evolves some. And it's found, it has slightly different variations in different places and different churches. But the core of it is, is the same. And it is the most confessed creed of the church. So by confessing this, we're acknowledging that Woodland Hills Church, the community of Woodland Hills Church, we are just one expression of the church universal, the Catholic church. And, and, and we're part of something much, much, much bigger than ourselves that goes around the globe and that extends far, far back in time. And in, and in a world where it's all about change, the rate of change is speeding up, accelerating faster and faster and faster and faster. It's good to belong to something that doesn't change, okay? It's just the same. And, and, and uh, yeah, it, it, it looks different in different cultures at different times, but the core of it, the dogma, remains the same. And so I'd like us to confess the Apostles' Creed. Um, if you're able, would you stand? And I want to encourage the online congregation uh, to verbally say this. I know it kind of may feel weird to be saying it alone in your home or with your wife and kids and husband and kids around, but, but it increases the sense of solidarity. We are confessing this together, and we're confessing it in in conjunction as an expression of the church universal. So let's together read the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. All right. Uh, don't forget the Muse cast on Tuesdays. Uh, they go a little deeper with the message. I think I might be on there this week. Am I on there this week, Shauna? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going or where I'm doing. My wife has to tell me. Um, she's not here right now. Honey, am I? Um, then also we have gathering groups. Encourage you to participate in that. Check out the classes we have. We've got some kicking classes. Uh, and and, and be, always be furthering your education and all that. Is there any announcement I'm supposed to make? Not that I can recall. So as, as the great Dan Kent has said, that's all I got. See you guys. God bless you. Have a great day. Have a great week. Go out and love on the world.